Hello and welcome to Mostly Climate. I'm Doug McNeil. As part of our series investigating the future of snow and ice, in this episode we hear how climate change is affecting archaeology and in particular glacial archaeology. To learn what glacial archaeology is and how climate change impacts this unique field of study, I spoke to archaeologist Lars Pila of the Cultural Heritage Department at Inlandet County Council, Norway. Glacial archaeology is a new and developing field in archaeology brought on by climate change. The glacial ice in the higher mountains is uh, retreating due to the warming, and uh, this has turned out to be a boon for archaeology, rather surprisingly, because it turns out that there are a lot of artifacts and other interesting stuff preserved inside the ice. So that was a huge surprise when this started happening, and it's been developing for the last 25 years. So many of our listeners might remember Ötzi, the Iceman. Was that one of the first objects that was found, one of the first sort of major finds of glacial archaeology, or does the field date back prior to that? Well, he's obviously the most spectacular find in glacial archaeology ever. Uh, you would be hard to talk, but he's not the earliest finds. There are finds going back to 1914 here in Norway, and into 1925 in, in Northern America. But the field really only started to open up in 1997, when there was a huge melt in the mountains of Yukon in Canada, and lots of stuff started melting out. And then after that, there were further melts in Alaska, in other provinces in Canada, in the, in the US, in the Alps, and then in Norway from 2006 onwards, there was a huge heat wave here in the late autumn in 2006, and we had suddenly hundreds of finds melting out. It's clearly been a really sort of recent development as climate change has started impacting on the high mountains in the Northern Hemisphere in particular. Just to give our listeners an idea, what kind of objects do you find and how old are these objects? Well, to get to the age first, the uh, earliest objects we have now here in Norway, they are 6,000 years old. We still expect them to become older as the ice melts back, but there's a sort of a back limit to how old they can get, because uh, we had the Holocene Thermal Optimum 8,000 years ago here, and at that time there was probably very little ice in the high mountains of mainland Norway. So that's sort of the back door, but they're 6,000 years old now. Basically, there are two kinds of sites connected to uh, to glacial ice. And one kind of site, which are the most common ones up here, are hunting sites. So the reindeer on hot days in July and August, they get bothered by pestering insects, especially uh, insects that would like to lay their eggs, like their botflies that would like to lay their eggs in the throat or in the skin of the reindeer. And the reindeer don't like that. So they go up on the ice and snow because the butterflies won't fly over snow. So they know they're safe there during the day. The butterflies are only active when it's really warm. Once it gets to the evening and it cools down, the reindeer can go down and, and start foraging again. And obviously the old hunters knew this, right? So they knew that they could hunt them on their way to the ice patch or they could hunt them when they were on the ice patch. So that's one kind of site. And on sites like that, you will find artifacts that are connected to hunting, obviously. Arrows, we have over 200 arrows melting out of the ice. 
and you can find a, a bow if you're really lucky, uh, or other kinds of hunting implements. And then you have the transport sites. There was a lot of traffic through the high mountains in, in the old times, much more than we thought before the ice started melting. Some of this terrain is quite difficult to pass, but if you use the ice, there's a firm snow there. You can use it sort of as a, as a highway. It's very easy to walk across. And But obviously, if you do that a lot of times, you will drop stuff. And on sites such as, as that, you can find basically anything because it's a much broader sort of uh, part of the material culture that gets left behind there. So we found uh, the remains of sleds, the dead pack horses. We even found a 16th century dog, complete skeleton of one. You can find uh, clothing items. We have a Viking Age mitten or 1,700-year-old tunic and all kinds of stuff. So that's the two uh, main types of sites. And are some of these objects better preserved than others? Do you find those because they last longer or do you find them because, you know, they were more often dropped? And what are the processes in the high mountains and on the ice which preserve these objects? Well, to take the second question first, uh, it's really important for if, you, if you want the objects to preserve that they should not be on what we call a regular glacier, one of these large moving glaciers that sort of dig their way through the terrain. If artifacts get lost there, which obviously they were, they will be crushed by the moving ice and dumped at the mouth of the glacier. So there won't be much to find. What you need are non-moving accumulations of ice, what we call ice patches. So if you have that, that's a much larger chance for the objects to survive. It doesn't mean that the ice patches don't move. They actually do move, but they just move much more slowly than regular glaciers. So that's one part. But the second part is that uh, most of the objects, they go a bit in and out of the ice. They're lost up on the snow. And then because ice patches react much quicker to changes in weather and climate than glaciers do, they sort of expand and contract all the time. The objects that are lost on the ice there, they often melt out. And once they get out on the surface of the ice, they get washed downhill by meltwater or by moved by wind or whatever, and end up in front of the ice. And then the ice expands over it again, the retreat and expands. So many of the artifacts are going in and out of the ice. And that means that some parts of the artifacts will deteriorate or get lost, like uh, the fletchings for arrows or the sinew, which has been used for securing the fletching or the arrowhead while the, the arrowhead itself and the wooden shaft may still be preserved. So when we are lucky and we are at the site, when the stuff comes out of the ice for the first time, they look like they were lost yesterday. And this can be quite confusing to an archaeologist because normally when you find stuff, it looks old. You can see that it's old. But the stuff that comes out sometimes, it, it looks brand new. So the eyes, it, it's a cliche, but it works like a time machine sometimes. You've got some wonderful uh, pictures on your Twitter feed, which is how I found uh, your work with these incredible objects looking as if they're freshly made uh, and really well preserved. How does it feel to find one of these uh, objects, knowing that you're the first person that's seen it since it was lost maybe a thousand years ago? Yeah, it's an it's an awesome feeling. It's really hard to compare to anything. I mean, I remember back uh, ten years ago when we discovered the Lenbrain uh, mountain pass, 
We found an arrow inside it, but it was a really small arrow. It was only 26 centimeters long, and it was blunt at one end. And we realized quite quickly that it had to be a toy arrow because there's not just not enough impact energy for that to kill anything. So it was practice wow. for a child. Just think about this kid who lost his arrow up there. It was probably sad because it had gone missing in the snow and thought it was lost forever. And then 1,400 years later, it comes out of the ice. It's just uh, incredible. That's fantastic. I guess these objects were quite valuable at the time to these people. They may have been relying on them, or in that case, it sounds like a kid may have been learning their way of life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, learning to hunt with bow and arrow was really important uh, at the time. And this uh, arrow was was from about 600 AD. I mean, this is in the chunk in the middle of the late antique Little Ice Age, where we can see from our finds that there's actually increased hunting activities taking place at the ice patches, probably because uh, the conditions for agriculture were, were poor during the time, and they had to rely more on, on hunting and, and gathering. So you can see, can you, as you're looking at the objects through time, you can see how maybe the climate was affecting people's lives as they were traveling through time? Yeah, we can see that the number of finds will vary over time. The late antique Little Ice Age example of increasing finds, that's the clearest one we have. And of course, the further you go back, you get what we call a, a taphonomic overprint. And that means that for some periods, finds will be maybe missing because the ice may have been smaller and stuff may have melted out and been lost over time. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite complicated. It used to be thought that when the ice expanded, there would be more finds because they would preserve more. And then when it contracted, there would be fewer and finds would be lost. But the reality is that we have now a lot of radiocarbon dates and, and we have the glacier curves for our area and, and it's not so easy. And and also some of these artifacts, like uh, things which are wooden or in bone, or they can preserve for quite a long time outside the ice. We found a piece of an Iron Age arrow 100 meters away from the ice edge, uh, from one of our ice patches. So, of course, they they don't look fresh out of the ice, but it's still preserved. So it's not like they, they melt out one day and they're gone the next. We thought that in the beginning and we were quite stressed, but now we understand that we have a little better time to collect the stuff. And is that because of the conditions, the meteorological conditions around them? Does that help preserve them? Yeah, there are two things. I think one, one of the meteorological conditions, as you say, it's cold and dry. So even though it melts out, it doesn't melt out into a humid 25 degrees Celsius environment. It's maybe between zero and five degrees in the summer when it's out. And it's normally quite dry. We can also see that sometimes there's a local microenvironment. If there's a huge boulder there, which provides shade and maybe catches snow better during winter, stuff behind that on the northern side of that will also preserve better. So there's both the, the larger and the microenvironmental conditions that play a role. You're working at really high altitudes a lot of the time here, and you may be working a really long way for resupply. What are, what are the real challenges of glacial archaeology? What does a field trip look like? Yeah, well, it, it's very different from lowland archaeology. I can tell you that. Basically, we do three different kinds of field work. So we do what we call exploratory surveys, where we, we don't know if there are finds, or maybe we have a report from a mountain hiker that he thinks he or she has seen something. And we go out to check it. So that's normally a one-day hike 
Well, we travel light with uh, very little equipment just to check out the site, see if there are finds. If there are finds, how many are there? And if it's a really huge site, we need to look for a campsite and access and water and stuff like that. But then if we find a site and it's large, we need to come back with a, a systematic survey. And this is a very different business. We use pack horses to get up to the sites. We have a base camp. We stay for a week or 10 days. The actual uh, field work uh, along the ice is quite uh, different. Normally, we don't really have to excavate the objects because Mother Nature does the excavation by herself by melting the ice. So we normally just survey along the edge of the ice and then we, 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 we mark objects and we have a finds team which will follow along and, and collect the objects. So that's normally quite easily done, but sometimes the objects are still stuck in the ice and we can't wait. And that happened in 2021 when we uh, found uh, a ski up at the Degelhard mountain. And the, the funny thing about that story is that we found a ski then in 2014. And this ski was later dated to 700 AD, so it's pre-Viking, and it's incredibly well-preserved with the, with the binding still there. And we could make copies and ski down the slopes and see how it worked. So that was great. But there was only one ski. And these ski, they, skis, they normally can appear in pairs. So we would, maybe the other ski is also there. But uh, there was no ice retreat, and we followed the ice patch on satellite imagery. And then in 2021, we could see that the ice patch had retreated, and uh, we sent up an archaeologist to check for the ski, and he found it. And it was it was also even better preserved with the binding and everything. So we, we sometimes we excavate, but normally we don't. We just collect the stuff. You've mentioned maybe some of this already about how um, how climate change is affecting your work. So it sounds like you're going back to a site regularly because the climate is changing fast enough that it's worth going back as the ice retreats. Is, is that sort of an ongoing retreat or do you see the ice return and then go back again like waves coming in? Or is it that the ice goes back year on year? There are two parts to, to answering that. And, and one thing is that the ice doesn't go back in sort of in a linear uh, fashion. It's more like the Arctic sea ice, that it goes up and down, but the trend is down. And, and with the current prognosis is that with the locked-in warming we have already, our climatologists here in Norway tell us that 90% of the Norwegian high mountain ice will melt away in this century. So the ice is going. But the second thing is that the ice patches are a funny lot because they don't act like glaciers or other ice accumulations. They mainly feed off wind-drifted snow. So they're normally situated, not exclusively, but normally situated on the northern parts, the slopes of mountaintops. Often there may be a small depression there as well. And if the ice patch melts back, they have a greater chance of catching snow in the winter. So they are sort of self-sustaining. And we can see that, uh, for instance, there, there's one site, it's not in our county, but just north of it, but they have shown that by radiocarbon dating the ice, that there are 2,000 years of ice missing in the stratigraphy there from the first and the second millennium before Christ. Those 2,000 years are missing. And this is also a period where many of our finds are not so well preserved. So probably the ice retreated, it was warmer and the ice retreated, but the older ice still survived. 
So we don't know how it's going to play out. We know it's going to, it's going, the ice patches are going to melt away. But we, we're not sure whether it's going to happen really fast, so that it will be in the next couple of decades, or whether they will be able to keep going until the end of the century. Part of that uncertainty sounds like it's to do with the processes in the ice itself, but a part of that uncertainty sounds like it might be due to the sort of extent of climate change and how serious climate change becomes over the next century. So would you say that the impact on glacial archaeology might be different depending on people's actions and, and the way that climate change actually pans out? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the warmer it gets and the, the higher the temperature rises, the more ice melt we, we will experience, at least in, in, in our area, which is very much uh, temperature dependent. So that's definitely definitely going, uh, going to happen. You mentioned before the possibility that maybe 90% of these ice patches or 90% of the ice in Norway in the high mountains would melt. Would you say then there's almost a... A possible race against time to make these discoveries. There's a, a kind of natural time limit on glacial archaeology as it is at the moment, which would mean that you would need to discover as much as possible as quickly as possible. It's sort of strange. I, 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 I just wrote a small paper about this to the Journal of Glacial Archaeology, where I, I try to see the future of glacial archaeology, because now we're sort of in the middle of a boom. And it's not, I mean, it's certainly not only Norway, the Alps, there's a lot happening. There's new stuff happening in Mongolia, in Canada, in, in the wider Yellowstone area, in the US. So there's a lot of melting going on. But at some point, the ice will be gone. And the field phase, the field work phase of glacial archaeology will be over. What we will have, we'll have left is the stuff that we were able to collect and document while the melting happened. So it's a, we're sort of in a time-limited phase. It's a very different field from other archaeology. I was going to say, as somebody who's been at the forefront of this field for a while, how does that make you feel? It's difficult to describe, but it's, it's exciting and sad at the same time. I sometimes get into discussions with people on social media with this because we have people cheering on global warming on our Facebook page, saying, oh, it's great, more, more melting, and we'll, there will be more fines. <laughs> And and I say, well, that's, this is this is <laughs> this is a two-sided story, and and I mean we enjoy the finds, but we have gotten to the point now where we also get criticised by people when we enjoy our finds because people say, oh, but there's a dark background to the finds. You forgot that, did you? I said, no, we didn't. We're in the field for maybe four weeks to six weeks a year. That's sort of between the snow has melted from the previous year and the new winter snow comes. And we worry about climate for the rest of the year. But when we're in the field, we are allowed to enjoy the finds. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely understandable. The joy of, of discovery and uh, and pushing back knowledge. Um, I read on your some of your, your social media that sometimes you get people who are sceptical of climate change commenting on your work. Uh, what would you say to them uh, about what you see and, and, and what you do? What, what would you like people who are sceptical of climate change to understand? Well, I think there are two different types of uh, what, what I normally call climate science deniers. And I always try to have a, a friendly conversation with them. The strange thing with us and society is that these people don't really deny climate science. They only deny the part of climate science that they don't like. 
Right, so they, they, they deny only the, the modern part, right? Cherry picking, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was going to say, because uh, you've, you've mentioned several times um, the fact that um, ice has retreated uh, in the past uh, and that clearly climate has changed in the past, but we know from physics that it's different this time, right? So I can see that, that your, um, some of your evidence that you're discovering might bolster this kind of sceptical view that climate has changed in the past. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens, is, is that they say, yeah, but the stuff here is found on the ground. So that, that means that uh, there was no ice here when it was lost. And that means that climate has changed in the past. Uh, how could that happen? Uh, I mean, the, the Vikings didn't have uh, cars. How, did, how could that happen? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's, then, as you know, there's a couple of things that are inherently wrong in, in this approach. And the first thing is that obviously climate has changed in the past. Everybody who has read up on climate science knows that. And glaciers have expanded and retreated over time. As you said, it, the difference now is that humans influence the climate. And as I try to explain, just because climate change happened for natural reasons in the past, that doesn't mean that humans cannot have an influence on it now. There was one thing I wanted to pick up on, actually. You mentioned earlier um, the process by which reindeer, I think you said, uh, went to the to the high meadows, maybe, or went up to the high mountains because they were avoiding the, the flies or the insects or the biting insects. Uh, and it got me thinking, you know, there are clearly sort of ecological processes which our ancestors in the past have exploited and interacted with. Do you notice climate change impacting the ecology around you? Maybe when you're on the, these field trips, can you see what's it doing to the local wildlife and ecology? I think uh, for our mountains, it's still a bit early. But obviously, when the ice melts, there will be major uh, consequences of that. And uh, one of the reasons will be that there will be no ice for the reindeer to go up to, and there will be no water for irrigation. That will be gone, and it's also used for hydroelectric plants, and and that will also be gone. So, so that would be one thing. And obviously, we can see, what we can see is that the the tree limit, tree limit, the forest limit is is going up. So it's the, the landscape is changing uh, definitely. But once you're up at the at the high mountains. Uh, up at the ice, the landscape still looks, I think, more or less like it did in the Stone Age. So that's uh, sometimes it's very nice. You stand there, you can see the reindeer, and and you think there was a hunter. I mean, sometimes you can see their hunting blinds, uh, which are stone built. They are still preserved in the ter terrain there, and you can sit in one of those and look at the reindeer and think somebody was here two thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, and saw the exact same thing. Lars Peeler of the Cultural Heritage Department in the Dead County Council, Norway. My thanks to Lars for that fascinating insight into glacier archaeology. And if you'd like to see some of the incredible artifacts that his team have discovered in recent times, head over to Lars's Twitter channel, Secrets of the Ice, or visit the website, secretsoftheice.com. For now, though, I'm Doug McNeil. Our editor was Adrian Holloway and producer Claire Nazir. This has been Mostly Climate. Thanks for listening. Mostly Climate is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.